Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Mary Beard, Cambridge professor, living national treasure in Britain and the world's most famous classicist. Mary, what is a classicist? (laughs) Well, that's a very good question, Julia, because you might say it's somebody who studies every aspect of the culture of ancient Greece and Rome. And that's true up to a point. But the definition has always been a bit contested. I mean, it's never quite certain how far ancient Greece and Rome are thought to spread. Is this what you might say, the study of white men in the Mediterranean basin? Or is it a much wider study of a people of every possible colour and ethnicity, stretching from the Sahara through to Syria and to Scotland. That debate is is ongoing. I mean, I think every good subject has a debate about what it's about. <laughs> and classics is no different from that. So it's ancient, it's Greece and Rome. But then what do you mean by Greece and Rome? <laughs> Well, that's still up for grabs. Insert dissertation here. Uh, (laughs) Mary, how does a young girl fall in love with the classics in that way, with Greece and Rome? Well, I don't think I ever fell in love with them, really. I find them extremely interesting. I'm very pleased to have spent a whole career researching the Greeks and Romans, but I don't like them very much. (laughs) You know, and I think if somebody said we'd like to go back there, you know, answered absolutely not, you know, unless it's a day return I can have and just have a peek. I mean, I'm afraid like all kids, really, if first of all, you get interested in what you're good at. And I was good at Latin. I was a kind of a bit of a nerdish control freak. And so Latin was great for me. And because perhaps I still am a nerdish control freak, I don't know. So, you know, when you get to get good marks, you kind of think, oh, yes, and you preen yourself a bit and you think this is what I want to do. And I think there are other reasons, personal reasons for me. I was an only child growing up in quite a prim English country town. And I did get very interested in the archaeological aspects of Greece and Rome. And in fact, there were Roman villas being excavated all around where I lived, and going out to camp on a Roman excavation with other late teenagers was 
the perfect excuse to get away from mum and dad, <laughs> to be doing something that they thought was, you know, really serious, intellectual. You know, Mary's gone on an excavation. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, you can imagine what happened in the evenings. Oh. <laughs> and I, I think that kind of bonded me in socially to the idea that studying the ancient world could be fun. <laughs> It's a, a good way to find yourself as a classicist. I think you're selling it to people. That's great. Looking back on your childhood, your background, what was the first point that you said to yourself, hmm, it's different to be a girl and a boy, or perhaps people treat us differently? I'm ashamed to say, really, that I didn't really notice that in practice till I got to university. This Seems odd. I was very keen when I was a teenager on feminism and I read my Germain Greer and all this kind of stuff. I saw that feminism was an important idea, but I thought it was all kind of in theory, really. Um, and that's partly because I was at an all-girls school, which was you know, quite old-fashioned in its way, but it, one of the things that were kind of was absolutely at the centre of this school was that women could do anything and any subject that men could do. So, you know, when my friends wanted to do physics or I wanted to do Latin and Greek, there wasn't anybody there saying, oh, you know, mm. you know, wouldn't you prefer a bit of, you know, home economics or something? <laughs> um, so throughout that formative period, I just thought that women could do anything that men hadn't. It hadn't twigged it, really. And it was when I went to Cambridge, and much as i really do love Cambridge, that was when I realised there were actually people in the world, including those who studied and taught at the university I was at, who somehow thought that women, they were good, but they never that good. I remember vividly a, a guy who I'm still friends with coming into my student room, it was pretty messy, and picking up one of my written essays from the floor, and it, it had been marked by my tutor. And it said at the bottom, this is, this is very good, this would get a first-class mark in exams. And he looked at me, he said, you, get a first. And I thought, the only reason you're saying that, you have no clue, the only reason you're saying that is you don't think that's what women get. Mm. <laughs> and uh, did you challenge him on that in the moment or did you think about it later or uh, think about the best witty one-liner later and wish uh, you'd delivered it? The latter. Mm. I, but as you can see, I've remembered it 40-plus years on. I suspect he's forgotten it and I've never reminded him. It was, in some ways, a light bulb moment, you know, that there were people, people you liked. You know, this, these weren't kind of crusty old conservative dons, you know, in the backwater of some old man's college. This was one of my friends. So that was when I thought, right. You know, but I, I was at a women's college and I don't want to say I'm still at the same women's college because I have left and come back. But that was a bit like my school and very, very insistent on supporting women's aspirations and women's careers. And in a way, it cushioned you from the real world of everyday sexism. Now, I still feel very uncertain about whether it was a good idea to have been cushioned from that or whether actually it let me launch myself. I was confident enough before I had to face all, all the crap that you get from men, mostly men, not entirely, <laughs> you know, in the everyday. 
yeah, huge debates about all-female education oh. and almost uh, irresolvable. But obviously in your own life, that cushioning did help you deal with these incidents of sexism when they first came to you. Yes, it did. I mean, you know, I can't imagine ever if you were inventing education all over again, the idea that you'd start dividing it by sex, educate girls separately from blokes. That would seem mad if we were free play and we could start all over. But in a world like this... Sometimes, you know, women all together giving each other a bit of support can be quite useful. Help me. (laughs) (laughs) You once said, I actually can't understand what it would be to be a woman without being a feminist. What did you mean by that? (laughs) I suppose exactly what it says in Justice Simply. I mean, I think that the one thing that makes me really cringe slightly is when you hear and you sometimes do hear even amongst your own female students well because I'm all in favour of women's rights and everything but but I'm not a feminist yes, yes that, think, that phrase I'm not a feminist I've heard that a lot I'm not a feminist but, but you know usually I try to take that on feminism is a very broad church and there's very many different versions of it. Happily, there are. But somehow the idea that you can reel off a load of things that are absolutely fundamental to feminism about women's equality and equality of opportunity and then say, oh, but I'm not a feminist. I just think it's silly. (laughs) And why do you think the word has ended up... I mean, it's been in and out of fashion over time, but there certainly have been times when it had such a negative connotation that people would do the but. What built that around the word feminism in your view? Well, if I was being utterly honest, I'd say, you know, male fear, really, that when confronted with, you know, not just, you know, individual sparky women that they could or might not take seriously, but a movement which actually said, look, guys, things have got to change. And a lot of the things that you think of and associate as being, you know, the natural Habitat and lot and fate of women are not natural at all. You know, that was quite hard to take. I mean, men were nice as they are and sometimes hugely progressive, radical, liberal, etc. For centuries, men were the beneficiaries of female subjection is putting a bit high, but that's what we ultimately mean. And in a way, it's not surprising that when people were faced with their privileges as men being, to some extent, undermined, undermined, they got cross. And one of the easiest ways to get cross was say, these aren't real women, Mm. you know. Look, they're wearing dungarees. Do you remember that? (laughs) I mean, I don't think any feminist wears a dungaree now. Thank heavens. They were deeply, deeply unattractive. Um, And, you know... And inconvenient when you wanted to go to the bathroom. Terrible. Terrible. So there we were objecting to all the ways that women's traditional fashions were inconvenient. And we lumbered ourselves with dungarees. I was barking. Um, But I think men were responding with ridicule, rather effective ridicule, it turned out, to those who seemed to be taking away their privileges to which they come used and, uh, and you know it's a basic fact about revolutions and there has been to some extent a quiet revolution of women's opportunities that you know it's a liberal myth that revolutions have no losers we don't have revolutions where everybody wins and men were the losers in this and I, and I think they were and I think I hope that in the long run you could say but maybe everybody's a gainer in the end. Mm.
you know, in the immediate confrontation, it feels like you're a loser. And, um, and so the word gets all of that baggage. I'm going to remind you that, of course, you spent some time here at King's College London, the home of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. I think my colleagues at King's would not be happy unless I reminded you of that. But you studied a PhD at Cambridge. You came here for a time. You went back to Cambridge in 1984 as the only female lecturer in the classics faculty. Had it... How did that feel? Or have I got the history wrong? No, you're almost right. When I instantly went back to Cambridge, there were two other women. Ah. But they either retired or left within a year of me going back. So for about five years, I was the only female lecturer in the classics faculty in Cambridge. Look, it felt very different from being at King's. I would say, and this is not just to appeal to the King's audience, (laughs) that my career and my views on life and teaching would have been completely different if I hadn't had a time teaching in an institution that was extremely good, but very different from the way that Cambridge was configured. And it was partly very different in terms of gender. And also it was in the middle of a big city, not a small fen town. And it was an eye-opener for me about how a university could be different. Okay, so so why did you go back to Cambridge? Well, I don't know, but I did. And I mean, there there is something really difficult and something you have to look at quite carefully about women who operate successfully within all-male institutions. And I'm conscious that there would be some people working as one woman with 28 men And that kind of, even if it's rather upmarket blokishness that you get Mm. in a a department teaching classics, I can see that there are some women who would be very disheartened by that. You know, it would just seem a constant struggle. And for me, it didn't really. Theoretically, I I, disapproved and I've done everything that I possibly could to get more women in. And we've been successful in that. But I think there there were two things that really made a difference to me. Partly... And Cambridge is a, is a complicated institution and my faculty, the people who taught classics, they were men. But in my college, I went back to Newnham where I'd been as an undergraduate and that was all women. And so in some ways I had the best of all worlds. I wasn't just sitting with a load of blokes all my working life. And I think perhaps that that is crucial. I mean, I, I'm very conscious that I'd go to lunch with the other women and you would talk differently there. And it was, you know, you could say, oh, no, I have forgotten the children's ballet shoes, you know. <laughs> and you know, if you tried saying that in front of a group of men at a meeting, they'd look at you as if you were, a, you know, what you're talking about. Every woman around the table sort of knew what that meant. But I I suspect that I'd the combination of having been in Cambridge as an undergraduate and having been then at King's and then going back, I did have the confidence to call them out sometimes. You know, so when after a meeting, we would always discover that when we'd had tea and coffee, who was carrying the cups away? Mm. It would be me and the female secretary. You know, I did actually manage to say, hey, guys, this isn't women's work, you know. And that was quite, it's trivial, it's every day, it doesn't change the world, but it it gives you a kind of sense that you're engaging constructively with them. 
And would their reaction to that be, oops, I didn't even realise or see that and now you've pointed it out, I'll wash my own cup? Or was their reaction, oh, you know, like, really, she's nitpicking this silliness. Do we have to listen to it now? We've got a woman here in the faculty. <laughs> to me, of course, it was, oh, my goodness me, I, I, I'll go and wash my own cup. Heaven knows what they said in the men's loo afterwards, you know. Oh, God, did you have to wash your cup? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been suspicious if you saw them all rushing in I, together to have a conversation. And I always, I did used to challenge them that where they fixed things was in the loo. The one place in the faculty I couldn't go, that's where they made the real decision. <laughs> now, of course, at this time, you're not only juggling your career, but you've got two young children. You had your two children very close together. And you decided out of that experience, you could have been writing books and papers on Romans, Greeks, the definition of Rome and Greece, whatever. But you instead sat and wrote The Good Working Mother's Guide uh, with advice on topics about like the best way to hand express milk, amongst many others. I mean, what made you decide when you presumably were under a lot of academic pressure to publish uh, in your field of expertise to write that book and how did you manage it all? Sounds awful doesn't it? It it sounds pretty driven and I imagine it was pretty driven. Looking back I would say that I made some quite good calculated decisions that if you have very young children and you have some childcare help that's an essential part of this you do actually get a surprising amount of time to yourself but it's never consistent you know it is 15 minutes here 20 minutes there it it will be that doesn't sound like much of a luxury when you describe (laughs) it like that but I tell you what it's impossible to do when you have that kind of broken upness of your timetable, you know, and willingly, you know, you know, very happy to have my life broken up by the kids. You can't sit down and write a book. No. Or even, an, you know, an academic book or even an article, you know, because there you've got to have some sort of consistent thinking time which isn't interrupted by all the things that kids do. So I suppose I did two things, thinking that, you know, I want to keep myself out there, you know. I mean, it sounds awfully ambitious, doesn't it? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being awfully <laughs> ambitious. We yes. want women to be awfully yes, ambitious. I hoist on my own petal. <laughs> <laughs> I did two things. I started doing quite a lot of reviewing of books because that is something that you can do in snatches. The other thing was that in terms of the Good Working Mother's Guide, that was also something that was easy to write in chunks. You know, you can sit down and write 15 minutes worth of hand-expressing breast milk you know, and then move on to the next topic, and that's fine. I kind of thought that there was something that women who are actually in the process of going through this, of <laughs> enjoying going through this, you know, having very young children, trying to kind of keep a job up, you know, all the rest... They gain a huge amount of expertise in how to do it. You know, they know all the little tricks. And as soon as the kids have got older, they forget them. Mm. You know, it's all gone. I now look at my daughter's child and, you know, I wouldn't even be able to kind of age a baby. I can't tell one who's six months from (laughs) one who's ten months. Whereas when when you're actually in the middle of it, you have enormous but very temporary expertise. So I thought, well, why don't we share that expertise and just bang it down on paper. It's always a sort of bit of a jolt on the CV when you go to an interview or anything like that. They say, oh, good working mother's guide. (laughs) (laughs) 
in the middle of all of these wonderful histories. You went on to be a television uh, presenter to take your expertise onto BBC documentaries on the Romans and then that's led you to all sorts of shows you've been on, comedy shows, political shows, all the rest of it. So you really went from, you wouldn't say being an academic at Cambridge is being, you know, in obscurity, but compared with the media profile you've gone on to have, it's a quieter Mm. life. How is being catapulted to that kind of visibility? How have you experienced that? It's very odd. Very odd. It's very odd. I don't regret it because I was brought up, you know, with some very basic socialist principles, both by my parents and my teachers, you know, to say that if you are being paid by the state to research on, let's say, the Greeks and Romans, you've got an obligation to give back. And there, there are different ways of giving back, but actually sharing what you do uh, with a wider public is obviously one of those. Now, that seems slightly kind of 1960s, 70s now, because it's not quite clear who is paying for my salary, but I'm not quite, not absolutely certain it is the taxpayer any longer. But there is a kind of principle that, you know, you don't get a free pass to explore what you're interested in over a lifetime without some obligation. So I, I was always interested in. Originally, I think, writing more widely for a more popular audience. The television happened by accident, honestly, because there's an extremely good controller of BBC Two here for a while, a woman called Janice Hadlow, who actually was doing a PhD at King's, I think, and in her spare time. (laughs) And she had read my book on Pompeii when she'd been on holiday And what Janice was trying to do was to get both more ordinary-looking older women onto BBC Two and also more real historians to present history documentaries. So Um, instead of getting a presenter to front a historian's work. I think that professional presenters have got all kinds of things to offer and I don't think it's, it's not a question of one or the other, but there was a kind of period where it looked as... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As if you had to be a sort of 23-year-old size naught in order to present a history documentary. And Janice was wanting to, you know, undermine that in all kinds of ways. So she said, would I do one TV programme about Pompeii? And my first reaction was to think I don't want to do this partly because I knew a bit about telly from occasionally having done a talking head thing and from talking to my friends who'd done some and I thought it's terribly time consuming you know you go there and all you do is sit around and you know actually do I want to spend days and days just sitting around while they film things that are not me and then say something for five minutes so I basically was saying no and she called my bluff really And she said, look, and 
she was right here, you know, you have been one of those women who have said that while middle-aged men with all their wrinkles and grey hair are allowed on telly, middle-aged women with their wrinkles and grey hair are not allowed on telly, apparently. You've said that. Now I am offering you the chance to be on telly. You cannot be so inconsistent as to turn me down. That was a fair point, actually. So I said, all right. I thought, you know, I'd been, I'd been snookered, rather. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Clever argument by her. <laughs> you know? So I did it. I mean, I was right to say that it was terribly time-consuming. What I hadn't reckoned on it being was actually very intellectually interesting. You know, thinking how to put over what you wanted to say about the ancient world or this particular ancient site to an audience who weren't specialists, but without dumbing down. You know, how to treat the audience as intelligent and use telly to, in a sense, get over the kind of things that, to be honest, I'm talking about with students in the classroom. I really, really wouldn't want to do telly, which was somehow different, qualitatively different in argument from what I do with students. You know, the pleasure of thinking about that and kind of learning a new skill really got me into it. And the Pompeii documentary was very successful. And so I thought, OK, I'll go on doing this. And it's still interesting to me. It's fantastic. But of course, when you did start and build this TV career, I think you probably know what's coming now. Uh, But there was a moment when the Sunday Times critic A.A. Gill uh, reviewed one of your programs and said about your appearance that you were, quote, too ugly for television. (laughs) Uh, And you replied in a way that definitely took him down for that comment and started a debate about women's appearance and TV. Can you tell us, how did it feel to read that about yourself firstly? Well, it is a a shock. I mean, it would be nice to say, oh, I was very blasé about this, you know. But, you know, you pick up the Sunday Times and you think, oh? And it's, it's a bit like someone punching you, just a little bit. And then you... You think a few minutes later, that is just ridiculous. I mean, it was, you know, it went on and on about, you're coming into our living rooms, you might at least make yourself look presentable and couldn't you brush your hair and those tombstone teeth, God, they're dreadful, you know, on and on and on. What I thought was interesting about it was, I thought, I'm not going to have this. This ain't on, really. So I sort of fought back and it became a little... Cause celebre, which I think in the long run has done good, really, to the argument. Partly because it it extended beyond you know, middle class liberal guardian readers who of course thought this was terrible. And I wrote something for the Daily Mail about it. I was slightly trepidatious about doing that because I thought, gosh, you know, I've got sort of stereotype, maybe wrong, of Daily Mail readers, and I thought they were, would all be on Gill's side. Right. But I thought, nevertheless, I'm going to say, look, you know, I look ordinary. You know, this is what I look like. I look like I look like what a fifty. I was in fifty-five. I look like what a fifty-five-year-old woman looks like unless she's had an enormous amount of work done. And I wrote this in the mail. And what I was really surprised at was the comments under the line. I mean, you, you know, you're always told never look at the comments under the line, particularly not in the Daily Mail. You know, better to preserve your sanity than to do that. They weren't all supportive of me, but the majority were. And I suddenly realised, look, the demographic 
of the readers of the Daily Mail, because middle-aged women like me, they don't like Gil saying this either, because it's about them as much as it's about me. So it was quite sort of cheering to feel that what he thought was a, a nice piece of laddish wit, I guess, had really rebounded on him. I'm pleased to say that people invaded his Wikipedia entry. <laughs> <laughs> what greater punishment is there than that? <laughs> on the topic of things that can be very hard to look at, uh, you are there on social media. You've been involved in some controversial exchanges on social media. You've talked about some of the uglier things that have been said about you through through that medium. I'm interested in the sort of difficulties here for women who have a presence online. You know, if you point to the misogynist, often violent abuse, are you just giving it more circulation and more energy? Or are you calling it out and hoping that that gets us to a place where we discuss it and we no longer see that sort of toxicity? You know, where is the balance there? If you react emotionally to it, and at one point you put a photo of yourself looking tearful in response to things online, does that then get sympathy or do people then just keep going and saying, now you've shown weakness, we're going to keep at you? Where are are the boundaries here? How do you think about those questions? I think it's very hard and I think there isn't a single rule. And I suppose, except the only rule I would say is you have to do what feels right for you. I started out thinking that the one thing that you should never do is reply, that what you did when somebody threatened you with anything or said, you know, your private part, smell of cabbage, ha-ha, you know, that you blocked them and moved on. And then I thought, that never felt quite right to me. I mean, I can see that there would be people for whom that would be the best way of dealing with it. I thought if someone came up to me and said that, I wouldn't just walk by. I'd say, sorry, pardon what did you say, young man? <laughs> and I felt that I had to respond. I mean, I've learned how to respond, I think, more effectively than I perhaps started. But I think it's always important to try not to get cross, however cross you feel. And I don't always succeed in that. But I mean, that's the aim. And I to, to, to not show to, anger to not in your show responses. Anger, to try to take the higher ground of courtesy. This is the Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go yep. high. It, it can be hard to live up to. It is damn hard to live up to. It's a nasty weapon, actually, to respond with infinite politeness to someone who's just said your vagina smells like cabbage. You know, it does tend to show them up. I mean, what's been good about it for me is that sometimes it works. Now, I could not possibly claim that it worked in the majority of cases. But I would say... 20 to 25 percent of cases somebody will say if you say look I'm sorry I did not say that why don't you read it again they will tweet back and say yeah I'm sorry it wasn't quite what you'd said and I still think it's it's very very tough and you do get pilings and the reason that I posted the the tearful picture maybe it wasn't wise but it felt wise at the time was not about the issues, but what you want to try to get over to people is that when you are at the receiving end of a Twitter storm, I mean, it feels like about 100 AA gills all bashing you. Mm. There's, there's something extremely physically 
violent in, in the feel of it. You know, it's hard to know how to convey that. This is a, an aggressive medium, and that can be an aggressive medium whatever whatever side you're on. And I don't think that when the, the liberal left get going on a Twitter storm, they're any nicer on it than the alt-right, because it's, it is the physical, unrelenting power that it comes across with that is what gets you. You've shown a lot of uh, courage in the face of that, taking people on and 25% giving you some energy to keep doing it. But you've also shown a lot of courage in your blog. You talked about your own experience of rape in 1978. Can you tell us what made you want to disclose that, talk about it? It must have been very painful and hard to do. I mean, I've talked about it on the blog, but it was first published in the London Review of Books. And so there was a prompt to it that I was reviewing a book about rape in the animal kingdom. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Quite why they'd sent me a book about rape in the animal kingdom, I cannot possibly imagine. I can't imagine it was a bestseller, but maybe I'm being (laughs) unkind to the author. But I thought that, yeah, I can't talk about this without saying what happened to me. Well, you could have. Oh, would that have felt? I couldn't. You I, couldn't. I, you know, I couldn't. I can see one could have, but I couldn't. And, you know, to be honest, I don't feel traumatised by it. I feel, I feel very angry. I mean, I was raped by a guy when I was a student on a train going from uh, Milan to Rome overnight. I, I don't know why I don't feel traumatised. You know, I still feel angry. I'd still love to know what his side of the story was. I'd love to know what he said when he got back to his wife that night, you know, or the next morning. Nothing one suspects. But, yeah, yeah, nothing. But I thought that, I mean, people react very differently and I think that you have to be very sympathetic to people who have been raped and feel they never get over it. And I think that people like me who do get over it need to remember that there are people who don't. I think it's also the case that actually feeling that you can talk about it and say, I was very annoyed and it did not ruin my life. You know, I don't get a panic attack when I go on an Italian train. You could claim to me that I am some way kind of in denial, but I don't feel in denial. And I think it's quite important to say, look, sometimes terrible things happen to people and they get over it. They do actually get over it. And that can be an optimistic story for other people, as well as something which is self-exposing of yourself. You know, this is 40 years ago now, more than. And, I, you know, it's about, it's about my history. It's not about me any longer. And, you know, if, it, if it's done a little bit of good, then worth talking about it, I think. Of the many things that you talk about, you talk about the history of misogyny and the way women have been treated throughout the ages. So given your vast expertise, on what date did misogyny start? (laughs) (laughs) With the creation. (laughs) I think that, to be more serious, certainly within Western literature, and I doubt that this is different in any other literary tradition, But within the bit that I really know about, misogyny is written into Western literature and it starts at the very, very beginning of it. The example that I choose in the book is one which is very... came as a shock to me when I 
actually noticed it comes from Homer's Odyssey, probably the, the second earliest work of Western literature after the Iliad. And the story of the Odyssey is the story of the hero Odysseus coming home from the Trojan War. He's coming back to his long-suffering wife, Penelope. He's having a few dalliances with women on the way, so it takes him about ten years. And meanwhile, at home, Penelope is waiting and his son with Penelope, Telemachus, is growing up. And the Odyssey we always see, I think, as the story of Odysseus's homecoming, which it is. But it's also the story of Telemachus growing up. At the very beginning of the Odyssey, there's one absolutely crucial moment because Penelope comes downstairs from the women's quarters into the main room of the house and there's a bard who's strumming along and singing sad stories about what a terrible time the Greek heroes are having coming back from the Trojan War. She says, oh, bard, couldn't you please sing something happier? Couldn't you sing a more cheerful number? Perfectly reasonable point. Telemachus comes over to her, the sort of wet-behind-the-ears teenager, and says, Mother, shut up. Speech is man's business. Go up to your room. Now, I thought there's two things interesting about that. One is, you know, that is, as far as I can see, the first example in Western literature of, you know, a boy telling his savvy mum to shut up. And there'd be many, many, many more examples over the centuries. But also, it was even more embedded than that, because it was as if, if you think that this book is about... Telemachus growing up, it is kind as of if growing up as a man means shutting up women. What you have to learn to do is make women silent. That's what a grown up man learns to do. So it somehow equates the silencing of women with male adulthood. Mm. And I think oh, we haven't looked back. We are beginning to, you know, things are better. You know, no, I don't want to go and live in Homeric Greece. You know, things are clearly better. But those kind of rooted assumptions about who's allowed to speak, whose voice we hear. Well, you know all about this, Julia. You know, <laughs> I know just, a bit about sorry, it. Sorry, <laughs> this is teaching granny to suck eggs here. I mean, you know, who do we listen to? It's a fantastic to hear it. And of course, you've written so wonderfully about this, but to hear the history, I think that there's, for women who are trying to think about where does this all come from? Why is it with us? You've done such a great service to us with your book, Women and Power. So thank you for that. Well, <laughs> also, thank you for all your, you know, your great expressions of power and solidarity, I think. It will make a difference, but I very much doubt that we'll live to see a moment when women's voices are heard as if they were equal to men. They will be one day. We'll both have to live a long time and campaign hard. We always conclude these podcasts with a series of questions. We like to raise a fact and get a reaction. The fact for you is women in the UK now make up 56.5% of the student body and 53.8% of the whole higher education workforce, but only 27.5% of managers are women and just over a quarter of professors are yeah. women. Your reaction? Sadness is the first one. If I was being a liberal optimist, I would say, well, look, it does take time. I'm sure that's true. I mean, when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge, 12% of the undergraduates were women. 
and you know things have have moved on it takes time for these reforms to you know, all those changes to percolate through the hierarchy i'm sure that's right the trouble is i think women have always been bought off by saying just takes a bit more time you know i'm fed up for waiting thank you the more we can do to say look what's going on here is it's not as simple as there being active discrimination against senior women in the academy you know i can sit down with colleagues in cambridge and they will quite sincerely say we want to appoint more women professors and i think it would be churlish of me to accuse them of insincerity the problem is that what they see when they kind of think about what a professor is when they think about the qualities that a professor has those are already coded as men's. And so, in a sense, they're trying their best, but their mental, their kind of imaginative job description is already a bloke. And, I mean, I think women are not immune from that themselves. I mean, I do like to try the the kind of let's imagine game, you know, shut your eyes and picture a professor. Well, if I do that, I shut my eyes, I picture a professor, what do I see? I see a man in a lab coat with a beard. Mm. For heaven's sake, I am a female professor. (laughs) (laughs) But my mental image is still formed by that stereotype. So we have to work on ourselves as well as on the blokes. We do. Now, if you could change one thing to make women's lives better overnight, if we made Mary Beard queen of the world for a day, what would you change? Oh, blimey. That's really difficult, actually. <laughs> when you start to think of this, I mean, you can start to think of, you know, big thing. You know, you could have that. You could have a big political initiative about domestic violence and whatever, you know. But usually, important as those are, if you want to think about kind of mass making a difference, you have to think about, you know, I get someone to redesign tights. <laughs> something like that you know because you know, women are still I mean I put my tights on this morning and you know there's a hole in the toe and it's jolly uncomfortable <laughs> and they don't really fit and then they kind of come and I think just imagine all the women walking around the world today <laughs> now all right you could say this is a definite first world problem I accept that you know you know there are many women who do not have the luxury of a pair of tights and so you know I'm pleading guilty to a first world problem but within the first world you know let's do something about tight design (laughs) right to all the innovators out there there's a challenge and finally Virginia Woolf says lock up your libraries if you like but there is no gate no lock no bolt that you can set upon the freedom of my mind Mary Beard says (laughs) Oh, Julia, these last questions, they're really (laughs) difficult. I'm going to say, and I'm taking this rather from Margaret Atwood, whose last book, The Testaments, is very much a tribute to the power of libraries. Um, But she has a phrase that comes in The Handmaid's Tale, which I think is good for all women, wherever they are, whatever privilege, whatever continent, don't let the buggers get you down. Thank you very much. That's been a delight. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. 
This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Thank you.